WYXR Studio Sessions presented by Minfo returns March 8th. For more information, visit WYXR.org. Good morning, this is Bishop Phoebe Rowe of the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee, and welcome to Faithfully Memphis. Each Thursday morning, we broadcast live on WYXR 91.7 FM out of Crosstown Concourse in Memphis, Tennessee. And each week, we have the opportunity to speak with a special guest to learn more about their life and their ministry and the role of faith. Uh, that the role that faith plays in their lives. So each Thursday, we start with the saint of the day, and we are in the month of March, which is Women's History Month. And so even though it is the second day of March, earlier this week on February the 28th, we celebrated the feast of Anna Julia Haywood Cooper, And so I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Anna Cooper. She was born on August the 10th in the year 1858 in Raleigh, North Carolina, to an enslaved black woman, Hannah Stanley, and a white man. Uh, We presume that white man was the person who... um, you know, ran the the place where her mother lived and worked, uh, but we're not sure. And two years after the Civil War ended, she was able to go to St. Augustine Normal School and Collegiate Institute, which was founded by the Episcopal Church to educate African-American teachers and clergy. And while she was a student there, she was exposed to the Episcopal Church, so it speaks to the importance of college ministries, and she became an Episcopalian, and she married George Cooper, who was one of her instructors. He became one of the first African-American Episcopal priests in North Carolina. Unfortunately, Anna's husband died, and so she then uh, continued her education by studying mathematics at Oberlin College, and then she moved to Washington, D.C., where she taught at um, a segregated or colored high school. She was a huge advocate on behalf of African-American women and actually helped to organize the Colored Women's League and the first colored settlement house in Washington, D.C. She was not only an educator, but she was also a writer and an author. Uh, In 1892, she published a book entitled A View from the South. And in this book, she really challenged the Episcopal Church to do a better job of supporting African-Americans. And she wrote, and I quote, religion ought to be, if it isn't, a great deal more than mere gratification of the instinct for worship linked with the straight teaching of irreproachable credos. Religion must be life made true, and life is action, growth, development, begun now, and ending never. In 1925, when she was 67 years old, Anna Cooper became the fourth African-American woman to complete a doctorate, and she got it 
from the Sorbonne in Paris, France. And from 1930 to 1942, she was the president of Frelinghuysen University in Washington, D.C., which was a private historically black university that was open from 1906 to 1960. It provided adult education and social services for non-traditional students, including poor and working class African-Americans. And in an effort to make tuition uh, as affordable as possible and to increase access, they held classes throughout the city in local homes and businesses to reduce the commute time for their students and to make it as easy as possible for some African-Americans who were illiterate to learn how to read and write. So they offered high school classes as well as college classes. Anna Julia Haywood Cooper died on February the 27th, 1964, at the age of 105 years old. So we give thanks for her amazing life, uh, for someone who was born um, to an enslaved woman and yet did not allow her race or her gender to hold her back, but pursued education, uh, who fought for the rights of others and whose deep faith motivated everything that she did. So today, I'm very pleased to have in the studio Jean Chapman. Jean uh, is our first uh, guest in the month of March where we celebrate women's history. And she has had a very distinguished career with a BS from Jackson State University, an MS from the University of Mississippi, and an educational, educational specialist degree in educational psychology and counseling from UT Knoxville. She is also known throughout our diocese for her decades-long uh, lay leadership uh, in the Episcopal Church. And her resume is quite comprehensive. Uh, everything from being a program director at Methodist Hospitals of Memphis to working with Memphis City Schools uh, to being a behavioral health surveyor. So I am looking forward to learning more about all of these amazing things. But Jean, good morning and welcome to Faithfully Memphis. Good morning <laughs> and thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. Wonderful. So, you know, we normally start out by asking our guest to share about the role of faith in their life when they were growing up. Were you raised in the church, Jean? Oh my goodness, um, yes. <laughs> uh, every aspect of my life was colored by um, church and the people of the church. I'm from a very small town, mm -hmm. and church uh, was our central activity, mm -hmm. uh, not only for worship, but for activities, especially young kids' activities, because there wasn't a lot to do. And so church um, was an anchoring, centering point for us. It was a tremendous resource. And my, my family um, were all very rich um, in their 
Christian principles and their spiritual beliefs, and that was the underscoring, uh, undergirding of my 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 walk in life, and it still guides and follows. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was a woman of tremendous faith, uh, and that kind of just not only taught but demonstrated how mm-hmm. to walk through life. And even before I knew I could verbalize what all that was, I felt it, and uh, I, I did it, and I lived in great, you know, a sense of hope. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Now, on your resume, um, your skill set includes. <laughs> Organizational assessments and analysis, communication and collaborative problem solving, and consultation and program development. So my first question is, how did you ever find your way into this line of work? You know, I, I think um, I set out with not necessarily a fixed, this is where I'm going, but I set out with the goal of doing something where I could share uh, whatever talents and gifts I had with others. So that was kind of an undergirding. Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to the question of, of how I did and, and got to see and do all the things that I did is that I am I'm, I'm open, I'm curious, and I, I'm crazy enough to say yes <laughs> to new things. And I came along in, in life and history where there were a lot of new opportunities that were available to me. Mm-hmm. And with the grace of God, I was able to say yes. I was able to add stripes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and some of them came out of um, you know, un, uh, unplanned or um, bad situations where um, I, I, I went to Jackson State. Mm-hmm. I um, went with the idea of majoring in sociology which I did initially, but then I lost my father in mm. the second, beginning of the second year of, of college. And so I had to pivot. I had to go from this liberal arts leaning, you know, mm-hmm. degree and training to one that's going to allow me to make some money as yeah. soon as I graduated from college. I, I was prepared to um, get through college, you know, however, I couldn't just you know, I had my, my my dad had gone, and he was our primary breadwinner, mm-hmm. and uh, so I had to not be a drain on my family, and I had to, you know, try to offer some support to my younger sisters and my mother who was helping us. So that those were that was a pivotal role mm-hmm. or time, and I ended up choosing. Um, looking again for a degree in psychology, but my school didn't offer s- psychology. However, the head of the special education department was a psychologist who was quite eminent and had great training. Mm. And I felt like I could um, ease my way into the knowledge set, but also learn some of the skills. And that was a great opportunity. And so I ended up being uh, in a program, a special education program. that was being, it was the first time this curriculum was offered in prescriptive teaching, hmm. where the it was it was just um, accredited by the Southern Association of Colleges and Universities, and it combined the emotional aspects of learning and dealing with disabilities, and the educational aspects of helping children function. Hmm. So, um, functioning, social competence, 
overall competence in life has kind of like been the guide point for me. Mm-hmm. And then to, to make matters better or worse, uh, I was uh, given a scholarship to the University of, of Mississippi, mm-hmm. Ole Miss, and lo and behold, they offered the very same curriculum that I had just finished. Wow. So they said, we have admitted you and we will graduate you, but you can't take these courses again. Oh. <laughs> so they gave me the opportunity after the basic foundations, uh, you know, to create a curriculum based on what I wanted in a career path. And so I chose school psychology that offered um, counseling, uh, as well as um, innovative educational strategies. Hmm. And so, there I go. Mm-hmm. Um, then, I'm offered a job. My major professor came to work here in Memphis, and he said, come, they need, you know, folk like you, uh, starting in this new school mental health program. And um, I went. And of course, I had the opportunity to, well, I was required to have not only the certification in education, but I had to have a license in psychology by the Board of Healing Arts. So there's, there's the uh, Board of Education, and I forget the certification name of that department, but then there's the Board of Healing Arts. Mm-hmm. And so I then went back to school and uh, with the idea of getting a PhD, um, and I was enrolled here in Memphis in the University of Tennessee Advanced Graduate Studies Program. Moving toward the requirement to go to the Hill, um, do my residency, and get a doctorate in uh, the time uh, school psychology. Mm-hmm. Well, again, fate steps in, and the politics of the area dictated that the Memphis area should be, how can I say this, given the opportunity to have the University of Memphis be the primary graduate program in this area. Mm-hmm. And, and wanted to send the University of Tennessee packing back to Knoxville. <laughs> Got it. So there were several people enrolled in the program, and I was the last graduate of that program. Wow. I did have to go to Knoxville and defend my my research. Um, I was scheduled to start a residency there, you know, which was the re- only other requirement for the PhD. I had all the academic requirements. And at that point, I am um, starting my family. Yes. My husband is back from the army mm-hmm. and I'm giving priority to uh, his desires to go to school, and he ended up in pharmacy school, so here in Memphis. And therefore, I, I finished my degree and um, maintained my credentials in psychology and in special education. And so the path that you saw there, yes. that was the basis of that, but that guided me really to a lot of wonderful opportunities. Wow. Wonderful opportunities. Uh, and as I said, my my worst and best habit is that I say yes (laughs) I do yeah I do so I think probably in the general field of education and special education and perhaps even psychology 
I would imagine there are a lot of women, but as I look at your resume and I look at the um, analytical parts of your work, I would imagine that there weren't a lot of women. So as you were launching your career, how many women were doing the sorts of things that you were doing? You know, not a lot, but Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to be in the aura of um, at least three very strong women that I, you know, could look to beyond Mm -hmm. my my home and and my family. Uh, My psychology professor at Jackson State was the first female to get a PhD in psychology in this country. Wow. Jane Alexander Mm -hmm. from Vicksburg, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Uh, My department head, I can't remember the exact accolade, but she'd been the first, I believe, to score the highest on the GRE. Mm. <laughs> uh, and both of these are, are black, you know, females. Mm-hmm. And then from my little county in Washington County in, in, in um, Mississippi, one of my professors at Jackson State was from Greenville, and she had gotten her PhD in psychology. And she was wonderful and kind and gracious just like all the folk from the Mm -hmm. delta are and very giving to me and very much a mentor so those people were my foundation yeah now as i advanced throughout my work uh most of the persons that i work with were males Mm -hmm. and um I, i really was blessed to have folk who recognized that I did have some interest and um, did want to encourage and mentor me. And in their maleness, they got it and uh, helped me to mm-hmm. move into professional ranks. Yeah. And later on, I had a wonderful, uh, who's now friend, coworker, and, 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 and boss initially, uh, who was just a delight uh, in her skills and her competency. And so we were great friends. And so all of my professional life, I've been able to find friendships that turned into mentorships, mm. that turned into great support and guidance. So there were not a lot of women, but the ones that were there um, were gracious and giving. Yeah. And, and guided me through a maze that might have been very daunting if mm-hmm. I hadn't had those people, yeah. you know, um, in my ear and and helping me with my walk. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a a very blessed person. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I really am. God does have a way of putting people in our path. Yes. At the right time. So um, you are such an active layperson. um, And I know in this diocese, you have been very engaged for decades. And I wonder how your professional training has impacted the work that you have done in the church? Mm-hmm. That, that's a very, very good question because when I ponder, you know, why I say yes, because yes. it's not random, and the things that's of interest to me, um, I, 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 I've come to learn that you can do things at the micro level, okay, be it working with a person or mm-hmm. a client, um, you know, one whatever. But I learned that you can really make real impact is when you can touch the whole. Mm-hmm. And so like on a, a school mental health uh, example, 
I, I can do something with a child, one child, one family, and I can help that one child and that one family. Mm-hmm. However, my, my, what's in my heart and what's in my head tells me that I have to do more and that I have to find a way to change <laughs> the whole system. Mm-hmm. And so my interest has been, uh, wherever I am, looking at how is it that not only can I gain or receive, but where and how can I give back? Mm-hmm. And so looking at the whole picture, and, and yes, you know, um, church, formal church and worship uh, is, is a, certainly a, a lots of opportunity for individual growth and development. Mm-hmm. But I, I've learned a lot and I've gained a lot of skills. And so I've just learned to apply listening mm-hmm. and um, um, assessing, uh, being able to zone into not just what is happening, but why something isn't happening. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I have the formal education to know how to develop, uh, one, how to bring people together around, okay, now what is the problem here? Mm-hmm. Not from a uh, standing back going and pointing my fingers, but right. how, wh- what are we, what's going on here? And so I've applied that, uh, basically the scientific method to mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. that I've ever done, uh, which I learned in high school. So yeah. that, that's why. And the, a, a, pers- a, a person for whom much has been given, yes. I have felt the need to give back wherever I could. Mm-hmm. And then it goes back to uh, being open. And when there are opportunities in a, a and I'll share about my latest role, but mm-hmm. when there's an opportunity to see, okay, how can I help there? And then sometimes that puts you in a position where people say, well, she has an interest and let's see what else we can do with that. Right. So that's the general, mm-hmm. you know? And the, uh, I remember when we were um, discussing how the small churches. Yes. And so for our listening audience, um, our diocese is in the process of uh, coming up with the strategy mm-hmm. for how to support not only our small congregations, but really just sort of all of our churches coming out of COVID. And so Jean was retained as our small church consultant. So other than the canon to the ordinary and myself, she's probably been to more churches in our diocese than anybody else. So yes. you really do have this big picture perspective yes. of the hopes, the dreams, the concerns, yes. the fears of our smaller churches. Yes, I do. And I'm just wonderfully blessed in that regard too. And and I think you said I'm the only one. I'm, I'm sure there have not been many. Um, to be able to go and have up close and personal communication, not just read Correct. You know, or hear, uh, but to really know these churches and uh, work with them and develop relationships. And so that's been a wonderful opportunity. But I came to that simply by um, asking questions. What mm-hmm. are we doing? Where are we going with that? And in my head going, well, how can I help my small church, mm-hmm. uh, small congregation? And then that's what led to um, asking questions about the position and then having the opportunity to apply for it and then given the wonderful opportunity to actually do it. Yeah. So that that's what that's what got me there. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing that's gotten me everywhere. But I, I feel like I do have a um, set of skills that 
I can look at a crisis or a problem and my immediate, uh, I don't know, thought is moving toward how can I help manage that, be it on an individual, personal level or an organizational level. And so you wait in mm-hmm. <laughs> and you learn and, and, and you have really uh, the, the listening skills and, mm-hmm. the, and then adding to that, okay, what does that mean? The analytical skills. Mm-hmm. And then the various experiences have given me access to tools, mm. tools yeah. where I can help um, shore up. Now, what are we seeing here? What, from this perspective, from that perspective, and how do we bring all of those perspectives together toward some type of action? Mm-hmm. You know, I also um, have an analytical background. Um, I was trained as a public policy analyst yes. and did that work for about seven years before going to law school, which is also about, <laughs> I remember like the IRAC method, yes. issue, rule, analysis, mm-hmm. and conclusion, with Same the analysis thing. being the most important. And sometimes I have found that when I come into the church setting, and I have a more analytical approach to ask questions, hard questions, for some people, that's been Mm off-putting. They wanna say, well, the church is about God and Mm -hmm. the church is about faith and it's just the Holy Spirit is just gonna handle it and we don't have to ask these questions. No, 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 no. Like we don't use that particular skill set when it comes to our faith. Have Mm -hmm. you ever experienced that? And if so, how do you respond to people who are very nervous Mm -hmm. about an analytical, maybe what they would even perceive to be as a critical Mm -hmm. framework being applied to faith and the church? Mm -hmm. I I think that's a, obviously it's a great observation because you live it. And and I've uh, seen and felt the same thing. And I think it's because um, church for us is in the feeling domain, okay? In the the feeling domain. I want to feel good. I want church and worship and religion to help me feel better. Mm -hmm. Then on the analytical side, we're in the cognitive domain. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're in the knowledge domain. We're into why is this happening? What is happening? And so, to your point earlier, um, I'm, I, my training is in both the feelings domain ah, and yes. in the cognitive domain. And then um, it has it had to have been practical. I couldn't just write books and do talks. I had to uh, to make a living. I had to be able to apply some of that. So, yeah, we we want to uh, and don't always connect that when we come we come we bring our feelings with us and we want to feel good when we leave mm-hmm. and we almost want to put blinders on and not know about all the yeah. the other stuff yeah and yet in reality the whole is what we're living in and what we're mm-hmm. dealing with and so you know I, I don't have the answer answer but what i hope to do is you, you build on the feelings, you build mm-hmm. on how, how do we um, reinforce um, church and worship as, as a place of feelings mm-hmm. 
And then how do we further its growth and development and continuance by dealing with our realities? Mm-hmm. And, and no, it's not an easy walk. But the how that it's done, I think, is so very important. And the, um, the you know, taking the non-judgmental mm-hmm. or, or working toward this is not good, bad, ugly. Uh, it is. Uh, the 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 non-blaming, it's not the priest's fault. Mm-hmm. It's not the, um, you know, the musician who uh, uh, absconded into the night and left you all high and dry. But it's our mm-hmm. problem. It's us. Mm-hmm. All of it's us. Mm-hmm. But the good and the bad of it. And so those realities are there. And so style and, and approach becomes very important. Um, Educating along the way. Who are we? What's going on? Why is it going on? But not staying in there. Then what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. What do we want to do about it? Oh, we don't want to do anything about it? Well, let's talk about the consequences of not (laughs) Not doing anything. Because to decide not to do something is a decision. It's it's a decision. Right. And and so, um, you know, we all, members of the church, we're all individuals and we you know, bring out individual focus. And so there has to be this clarifying and and um, how can I bring it together? Um, A a way that the um, whole situation is looked at Mm -hmm. and that we seek to develop investment and understanding and commitment from everybody at their individual. Not all of us have the same gifts. Right. But everybody can make a contribution. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really feel like it's just like any other organization, but it's one that's in the feel-good business. Yes. <laughs> and people want to feel that they have been fed, mm-hmm. you know, when they come to church. And, you know, even I, on a personal level, for years I avoided uh, being a member of the vestry. I just mm-hmm. I wanted church to be where I go to be fed. Yes. Um, yes, you know, to serve. And I did that in many capacities. I sang in the choir and I taught Sunday school and I did all kinds of things. But I wanted, I didn't want the governor's piece right. of it. I mm-hmm. stayed away from it until I had to. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I was a senior warden for about 10 years. Yeah. So um, it's, it's learning, but uh, in, in my way of thinking about it, it's always recognizing that if I'm not doing something, to further this place that I want to, mm-hmm. that's nourishing me, then I'm letting it down and I'm letting myself down. Yeah. One of the things that I have found about leadership is when you find yourself facing a new set of either, you know, challenges or opportunities, depending upon how you choose to categorize them, and you really need to take a new path forward. Sometimes it feels, I think, to others as if you were being critical or judgmental of the prior administrations, whereas what you're saying is what they did may have worked in their time, Mm -hmm. but we're facing a totally different set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't change, if we don't pivot 
to meet the demands of where we find ourselves today, mm-hmm. then there are dire consequences. Are. So to say that we need to chart a new path forward is not always about criticizing the past generations, but it's about saying mm-hmm. we face a different set of circumstances. But mm-hmm. I think some people immediately become defensive, right? Yes. And say, well, are you saying that I didn't do anything? It's like, well, no, I mean, we're standing on your shoulders. We mm-hmm. wouldn't be here mm-hmm. if we didn't have that past work. And yet, and I really find that post COVID, that's where we are. Oh and yet, the church really needs to pivot. And that is hard from an emotional standpoint for for many people of faith. It is, and the key there is change. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, on the other side is we look to certain things for comfort, uh, and any change is a great <laughs> disequilibrial type thing. It, it, yeah. it upsets the apple cart. Mm-hmm. And our first um, response is to resist that. Yeah. And so, um, Change is inevitable. We all head Intellectually, we, we know, know that, that, but emotionally, it's, it's very, very hard. It's very, very, very hard. And so the, the, the main thing is um, communicating, mm-hmm. you know, um, in a way that everybody can hear. Not everybody hears the words in the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's having words, actions, and deeds say the same thing mm-hmm. over and over and over again. And then when there's that, that schism that you can see, hmm, then we have to go and find, again, a little more analysis. Why is that happening? And what can we do about it? So we can't just say, well, I'm sorry, we just got to move on. Right. We got, you know, the here. 10, 10 are moving forward and 15 are right on the, no we have to we have to take everybody mm-hmm. uh, who wants to go that's the other side right who wants to go we have to uh, church is not prison mm. and so we we want people we want to take people who want to go but at the same time we want to help people <laughs> want to mm. go right because the very reason that they are resisting and fighting is because this is valuable to them. Right. If it didn't, if, if it, it wasn't matter, important to them, right? If it didn't matter, they wouldn't care. They would. They yeah. would find another way to to spend their time. So yeah. it's an interesting paradox. Yes. You know, when you think about home, um, if you're on your own home, your own family, when everything was going a certain way, uh, and and you were comfortable in that, but there was a crisis of some kind, and then everything changed. And then you wonder, well, where am I in this? Mm-hmm. And why why is mom looking and acting this way? And why is dad not doing this? And and my little sister is sitting in the corner crying all the time. What what is all about that? And then where am I there? And so there's there's yes the uh, thought to flee, mm-hmm. to run away, <laughs> uh, not knowing that where you're running to. Right. Uh, at this point, just fleeing. You know, the fight or flight. Yes. So. Um, some stay and fight and some flee is just a response and that's just that's in us right so change is scary the process for dealing with it is is equally scary Mm -hmm. but it it has to be deliberate it has to consider everybody again who wants to come on the train Mm -hmm. and and then uh, take everybody where they are Um, I have the 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 what downside of, of some of the things that I've done in the past is I've been a, I have had to be a change agent. 
mm-hmm. uh, because I came along in my field at a, at a time of tremendous change, mm-hmm. tremendous change. And because I frequently said yes to challenging things, I was always, in, in many instances, the person who was um, making some things happen in a different way for, quote, the good of the order, or sometimes survival. Right. The survival. And um, so I had many, many wins, um, but sometimes there were some losses, mm-hmm. too, because my role was to change, but the individuals or the groups of persons I was working with, their role was to stay the same but have a different outcome. And isn't that the definition of insanity? It is indeed. You keep it doing is. the same thing and expecting a different result. It is. And so just to, um, just to, from my work experience, I, I just found that if I could find a way to kind of learn, well, what are your fears? What are you worried about? Mm-hmm. Why is this so upsetting to you? Mm-hmm. I, I had to be a part of, a, I was a vice president of, of St. Joseph's Hospital, and St. Joseph's closed years ago uh, and there were a lot of people in that hospital who had started as candy stripers and yeah and worked their way up all the way and, and most of them were born there so this was their home and so now it's closing and so I had to I had some nurses who were so angry at me uh, as the leader of our area and it's going like well we know what's happening we know right why it's happening none of us like it but why are you so angry you're so Mm -hmm. angry you can't even take a step and then it just came down to some basic kinds of things one guy says well i i i I don't know how to do a resume yeah i've never done a job application i've been here since i was 16 years old and so just learning that I was able to then change my mindset, mm-hmm. which was focused on the bigger thing, right. coming back to the individual mm-hmm. and then trying to develop strategies to say, okay, how can I help this individual, or this group of individuals to change their mind, go where they are, yeah. go where they are and come up with something with them, not, not put upon, but develop something with them that might change the the view mm. can't change the whole situation the mm. hospital was closing right it was it was essentially you know mm-hmm. we had a deadline and, and the doors were going to be closed and so that was the reality and it was pain and it was grief for everybody but we couldn't just sit there mm-hmm. and I always think about that because if I hadn't asked the, if I hadn't tried to address all of that anger you know as, as the leader, one of mm-hmm. the leaders, you just get the... You wouldn't have known. Tennis yeah. balls thrown at exactly. you. Sometimes yeah. harder yeah. things. Yeah. But um, I just kind of like, you know, <laughs> manned up, yeah. woman up, up. Yep. and went forth and, and just waited into the fray mm-hmm. and just says, okay, what, what is really happening here? Yeah. You know, what, this is abnormal. This is pathological. This is mm-hmm. not going to help anybody yeah. it's not going to help the patients that we're trying to care for it's not going to help you and your family what what can yeah. we do wow. so well i think that example that you just gave is a great way 
for us to conclude this conversation because I think it is abundantly clear that organized religion is undergoing a profound transformation. Yes. And it feels uncomfortable because we're living through it. And all of the feelings that you just communicated, the feelings of anger and frustration, um, people people in the church feel those things. And yet um, we're moving into something that looks different. Yes. And all of us are going to have to adjust. And so, Gene, we're just so grateful that we have you as uh, an active and engaged member in our diocese, willing to volunteer and graciously mm-hmm. offer your considerable talents to help us collectively, right, as a team, figure out a way forward that will hopefully have as many people who want to go as possible. And yet, the whole landscape yes. of everything has changed. Yes. Yes, it's a it is a wonderful opportunity, and it's also a tremendous challenge. But I I feel good being a part of it. I feel very good that you've taken an approach to say, well, well, you know, this is happening, and we got to do. You you're saying, well, how and where and who needs to be a part of this, and where are they, and the small and the large and the the, the country and the city, <laughs> yeah. you know, everybody is at the table. Yep. And I think that's that's the important part that can help in a crisis. Everybody's at the table because everybody's affected. Yeah. And nobody is being, you know, there's always the, the squeaky wheel. Right. But, but credence is not being given to one voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, the more that can be communicated and yeah. demonstrated, the better people will well I can't say feel but Mm -hmm. be able to accept that yes this is what's going on no I didn't cause it Mm -hmm. I want to be a part of making it better for me and my family and my community yeah so it's a process and and you're 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 approaching it that way not a, a one go and do this and we're oh, going to do that. Yeah, no, it's way oh. more complicated yes. than that. Yes. yes. <laughs> and um and it's so uh, it's so wonderful to have many many faithful people mm-hmm. at the table part of the conversation. I figured the more heads we have together figuring this out, the more likely we are to really have a path forward. Well, you're very smart <laughs> uh, in taking that approach um, and and assured that uh, that will lead to some gains uh, and set a path for our, for our future, yeah. which we really need, and we're grateful for you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jean. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Faithfully Memphis. Just a reminder that you can hear this podcast anywhere that you hear your other podcasts, including Apple Music and Spotify. We encourage you not only to subscribe or follow, but also to give us comments on um, things that you might like to see addressed on the show in terms of future topics. We really appreciate your feedback. So until next week, stay safe and stay positive.